0: Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack.
2: They decided the climate is the left's thing. The climate solutions sound like lefty solutions, so we're not gonna believe in climate change.
3: Hello, welcome to this or client show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is not the final episode we'll do on climate, but but the final piece of this five-part series. Um, and it's with, of course, Dave Roberts, uh, who has been my guide to so much in climate, so many people's guide to so much in climate. He's a Vox climate reporter, um, but he's just been on this issue for a long time. He's been, I think, as smart and sharp and serious and more both morally serious and intellectually serious about understanding it as anyone out there. He's won all kinds of awards. Um, one thing I should say about this episode, which covers some pretty different ground where the first two episodes were really about the science of climate change. The next two episodes were about decarbonizing and, and, and geoengineering, which is to say different ways we could try to implement solutions or mitigation efforts to climate change. This episode is about the politics of it, um, not just the politics, but the, but the informational ecosystem of it, which is really, I think, what is at the core of a lot of the gridlock. You can talk about the science and the, the policy all day, but if you can't think clearly about the politics. Um, you're not thinking clearly about it at all. Now, that said, the politics of it is pretty depressing. Um, and Dave is someone I know pretty well. So this is a little bit less of my normal. It's always kind of a conversation, but it's a more structured interviewy conversation. This is more of a conversation. Uh, and Dave and I go into some territory here that is, you know, for some will be not difficult in the sense of like a trigger warning or it's obscene, or, but it's, it's a little grimmer. Um, that said, I think it's honest. And I think it's important to face up to the honest truth of what is happening here, both for its implications for climate, but also for its implications for politics more generally, which I think are, are, are pretty rife. Um, Dave's done a lot of thinking about this. His path of trying to understand, you know, climate from the, the, the ground up has, I think, led him to some very interesting ideas about tribal epistemology, which we'll talk about sort of the way people understand and get information. And it's created a theory of politics that at the le- at the very least, even if you don't agree with it, I think one needs to truly grapple with. Um, as always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Love to get your feedback, your guest suggestions, uh, whatever it might be. Um, if you want to sign up for my book tour, you can do that at WhyWe'rePolarized.com. Uh, that is coming soon. If you want to pre-order the book, Why We're Polarized, you can do that at wherever you get your books. But again, Why we Polarized or EzraKline.com will give you all the information about the tour, places to order, um, all of it. That is all coming soon. Going to be a lot of cool stuff coming in January about that. So uh, if you are so moved, please do it. Uh, that all said, here is Dave Roberts. Dave Roberts, welcome to the podcast. Hey, great. Great to be here. So let's start with tribal epistemology.
2: What is it? Epistemology is the branch of philosophy that has to do with uh, knowledge, basically, how we know things, how we come to know things, what counts as fact versus opinion, all those kind of questions. Mm-hmm. Tribal epistemology was my attempt to sort of capture this phenomenon where a sort of group identity becomes so strong and so sort of uh, manichaean, kind of, you know, really bright lines between in-groups and out-groups, just once tribalism kind of takes over a group, you have what's called tribal epistemology which is instead of sort of assessing new facts and knowledge based on their you know correspondence to factual reality or their credibility in the scientific community various other metrics like that you 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 accept as true what is good for your tribe so sort of like your the tribal interests take precedence over epistemological principles. And I think I think people are a lot more f- familiar probably with tribal morality, where sort of like the interest of your tribe takes precedence over any of your previously stated moral principles. It's sort of the same thing, only instead of it shaping how you behave and think of what's good and, and not good to do, it shapes what you believe as true. And we're sort of like you know, watching impeachment, it's it's all playing out in very extreme, extreme terms. The reason I wanted to start kind of in
3: the in like the, the thick of it is you've traveled in a more intense way than many, but a path I've seen a lot of people, particularly in the climate space, travel, which is you start writing about the science of it. You're writing about how to solve it. You're writing about what you can do with the electricity grid. And then soon enough, you find that what you're really writing about is how do people absorb and believe information? Because, like, every problem is downstream from that problem. So I wanted to see if I could get you both having sort of laid out that, uh, like, framework for a minute. How did that come to be your topic? Um, How how did you find that to be the thing that you had to write about?
2: Sure. Well, I mean, uh, anybody who starts writing about climate change and this, you know, for like— I started in like 2003 2004 and of course the entire landscape was t- completely different then the political landscape was uh, uh, completely different but the 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 two things you encounter almost immediately <laughs> the two sort of vexing things that everyone in the climate you find everyone in the climate community uh, uh, wrestling with are one deniers like why is there this set of people out there who just insist on, not believing this science or who insist on coming up with their own series, despite the sort of torrents of arguments and explanations directed at them, despite years, years, thousands of man hours of effort spent trying to sway them, why they can't be swayed. And number two, why is nothing happening politically, <laughs> right? Like we we seem to get this problem. The scientists came and told us that like there's this huge problem looming You would think we would take, you know, action to avoid it. That it seems like it would be the rational thing to do. And yet no one anywhere in the world is doing anything close to enough. So what the heck? So you wrestle with these two problems and, you know, and like, I think we've, we've talked about this before. This is a piece I've been meaning to write forever. You could probably do a whole book on it, but it's really striking to me how many things in the climate world that I used to think of as sort of weird and idiosyncratic and kind of unique to the climate space have turned out to be kind of test runs or miniature versions of of dynamics that have now taken over the entire right and now like the entire political world is wrestling with. And one of those is this tribal epistemology thing. So, so you know, at some point on the right, they they decided the climate is the left's thing. The climate solutions sound like lefty solutions so we're not going to believe in climate change and that is like that is textbook tribal epistemology you sort of like derive your beliefs from what is good for you to believe and and one thing you discover in the climate world is just how powerful that is how everyone who wanders into the space underestimates how powerful it is because people come into the climate space generally from science. Like that's where the whole thing started. And it sort of like started with this group of scientists and then this sort of group of like left-brained rationalist lefty wonks, you know, sort of all these sort of rationalists owned the issue for so long and they just have rationalists I've come to learn have lots of blind spots and don't really get how humans actually think in the wild. And so there's this sort of clash of like all these patient good explainers and people who know science laying out these super persuasive pieces and then just this blank wall of refusal to believe it so how does that work what makes people what makes people (laughs) immune to persuasion basically and then and then that and then politics is just kind of a blown up larger version of that like what is what are the dynamics that are preventing um from moving. And of course, like all the rationalists, were like, well, we, we need to persuade them. Like we need to get politicians in a room and persuade them. We just need to show them Al Gore's slideshow. And that doesn't work. And it doesn't work. And it doesn't work. And you see people sort of breaking their backs against this blank wall. And eventually it starts to just, you start to wonder like, what the hell's going on in people's heads in human psychology that seems to have rendered the facts of all this kind of irrelevant to how the the social and political uh, issue is is shaping up. Like, why aren't facts mattering? That's what everybody who comes into climate ends up wrestling with. Like. And, and did they ever, I think, is also the other question. Um, well, yes. Yeah, so eventually, you work your way back to like, oh, wait a minute. Like, n- they never mattered at all. So there's a lot to dig into
3: here. Let me start here. You you said at some point uh, this sort of began to polarize, right? At some point, it became to be a thing Or climate was something that was a concern of the left and not the right. And what is striking to me about this issue is that that happened not just like in my lifetime, but recently. In 2008, John McCain had a climate cap and trade plan in his presidential platform. Like McCain and Palin were signed on to a cap and trade plan. McCain had co-sponsored one before. There was this famous commercial. I believe this was in 06, maybe, where Nancy Pelosi and Newt Gingrich were sitting on a couch together talking about how we needed to price carbon. It's just a fucking amazing time capsule. And I I always think that you can like literally document this precisely, that John McCain loses the 08 election. And I was at the Washington Post when that happened. And as you remember, Sarah Palin was like the big breakout star of that election. Like, yeah, sure, Barack Obama might have won the presidency, but Sarah Palin, she's great um, in a way that I think really uh, was a prediction of what was about to come. But the first big political statement that I remember Sarah Palin making after the election was an op-ed that of all things she wrote in the Washington Post because all the anti-elite stuff is actually bullshit and everybody just wants to publish in the Post and the Times. And it was about cap and tax. It was an anti-cap and trade op-ed. And I, I remember looking at that and thinking, oh, and I mean, you could already see this beginning, but between McCain and that dimension of the party losing and weakening. Al Gore really becoming the sort of icon of climate politics, uh, you know, and 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 there's all stuff about he lives in a big house. It just it really split like right there. And I'm curious why you think that was. There are certain issues that do not split in quite that way, certain like national security issues. Um, and then of course a lot of others do, like, say Obamacare, health care. But what do you think happened in that let's call it that 05 to 09 I'm sorry or 05 to yeah let's call it 05 to 09 that created that really sharp divergence in this issue.
2: Yeah, that's a a a great question <laughs> about about which I have probably too much to say but one I, I, by by just sort of by way of context one thing I would say is it's always good when thinking about climate change as a political issue to to assume Ignorance on the part of the vast majority of people involved—I mean, ignorance about the true nature of climate change as we understand it today. Like most people, especially back then, were just learning about it. And and the important thing in how it played in U.S. politics is that it was um, it was initially presented. It came into American politics as an environmental issue, capital E, environmental issue, a pollution issue basically. And so I think instead of looking at climate dynamics as though there's something unique that happened during that period, I think it's just more instructive to to look at it as a generic environmental issue and just look what happened to generic environmental issues during that period. In other words, lots of issues that had not been split in the same way. Like there were lots of reasons, there were lots of issues about which Republicans had to feign moderation for a long time. I I mean, people can differ about how much of it was real and how much of it was feigned. I tend to think most of it was feigned. I tend to think McCain's was feigned. Like I don't think there were ever any genuine believers or people who were genuinely cared about climate change on the right. I think McCain thought environmental issues were a strategic way that he could sort of in a very high-profile way, break with the right because he knows that whenever he breaks for the right from the right, right, he gets adoring or he got adoring press coverage. You know, just dumped on his head every time he did anything mavericky. So he would select these issues where there were no real political consequences; that it wasn't really that big of a deal. So he could sort of safely, um, safely spurn the right. And I think he when he when he thought that climate change was just an environmental issue. You know, like George Herbert Walker Bush signed the cap and trade program for for SO2, so it was it was not unheard of for. I mean, Nixon created the EPA. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, go back. That, that's why I'm a little generally. like That's why I'm a little push pushbacky
3: on that. It's all feigned all the way going back. There were just different people who were Republicans at other points
2: were just different people.
3: Like the Republican Party included people doesn't have now.
2: Yes, this is true, but also true that Nixon did not create the EPA out of like a spontaneous desire in Nixon's yes. hard to create the EPA like it was a concession like yeah. it wasn't obviously they would never concede that today so things have gotten more, much more hyper polarized but my point is just like they were not enthusiastically pushing that they were willing to give on it to get other priorities Right. and now they're not willing to give on anything <laughs> so so i think what what you have what you have what you had with McCain was a really like an object lesson and i think i would even narrow the polarization era down even kind of more tightly to like 2008 to 2010. You're right. Like McCain ran on climate change thinking it was like a benign sort of like not politically super significant environmental issue, pollution issue that he could get some Maverick credibility by breaking with his party on. And what started to become clear during that period is sort of two things. One, The space for bipartisanship and moderation was just closing generally, as you well know, like everything was polarizing during that time. The election of a black president was just a kind of trigger event that accelerated the whole thing, which was already happening. So all all political margin for a Republican for appearing flexible for appearing mavericky like the 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 Maverick brand lost its <laughs> kind of lost its power during that during that time because they didn't care about Mavericks anymore no one cared about Mavericks anymore it was all about team team sports so what you saw was McCain as as kind of the 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 climate bills sort were of winded its way through through uh you know the house and then the senate 2008 to 2010 you saw McCain just absolutely run away from this, (laughs) like turn and run full speed once the Tea Party got hold of it. And once he got a Tea Party challenger. And so it's like McCain's story is like this story in miniature, which is everything polarized. And so, of course, climate was going to get caught up in that. And it became clear that climate was a bigger, more significant deal than just like coal plant air pollution. You know, there was more that the solutions were more Threatening, I think, to right wing interests than, than like just having to t- attach a scrubber to a coal plant. One thing I want to go back
3: to is when you were talking about travel epistemology, and I want to bring that back in here. Uh, I know for people listening along, like that was like a big concept to start with, but it's going to be important to to maybe reflect some of it back at you. Y- your argument right now is that the right wing has detached from a lot of transpartisan truth seeking organizations, which, for all their imperfections, academia and mainstream journalism. They both have uh, a, a sort of – you can call it a business model, you can call it a professional ethic that has truth-seeking that is separate from the political interests of a party or of a movement. And in detaching from that and in turning hostile in many ways to that, they've sort of like untethered themselves from restraining institutions. And one of the reasons I want to focus here on institutions for a minute is that when you were talking about tribal epistemology – You made this point that it's when, you know, you're not assessing information against scientific accuracy. You're not assessing it against reality even. And the thing that I think is important in this is that we're never doing that. To a first approximation, nobody is ever doing that. Like I've been doing this whole climate series and I have – I can't run any of these fucking equations. What's happening is that I functionally trust – certain institutions to play it with me straight. Like when I have Kate Marvel on, who is a climate scientist at like the NASA Goddard Center, when I have Saul Griffith on, who is a clean energy sort of genius and entrepreneur and has a MacArthur Genius Grant, like I am relying on the expertise of others that has been credentialed through other dimensions of our society that I do not trust a 100 percent, but nevertheless, like have a certain amount of faith on faith in. And so, like, what what has happened here, because I I always want to, like, detach it a bit from people, that the right's institutions have failed in a pretty dramatic way. And so, like, what makes tribal epistemology possible is not so much that one side stops, like, doing the science, because almost nobody's ever doing science themselves. Like, what we can know firsthand is very limited. But, like, the left remained quite attached to scientists and more or less trusted them And the right detached from scientists and actually in many ways like started a war certainly against climate scientists to discredit them. And that it's that kind of institutional divergence that always feels to me like it's the core of the story. I mean, you and me both get emails from, you know, random people on the left and on the right. And like the truth of the matter is like I don't see a huge amount of difference between them. What is very different is the institutions that constrain discipline the left versus the right
2: yeah i would I would <laughs> the way I talked to uh, Chris Hayes about this on his podcast a while back and the and the way we sort of settled on describing it is when the right and the left divorced, the left got the institutions that's and, a great, so, <laughs> and, and that's a great one when, when when um you know I think a, a great way of looking at this in miniature is fox, right? Fox versus call it c n n Let's use c n n as the kind of the stand in for mainstream u s reporting um, Fox is to the right what the right thought or thinks cnn is to the left right so you, you, they look at cnn and the whole notion that there are transpartisan principles of evidence or fairness restraining the way they 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 report and present information in a way that is that is equally applies to coverage of both parties is just I think if you're a true, like deep tribalist, you just don't believe that's like describing ether. Like, I just don't think they don't believe that those things exist. What they thought was that CNN was just a clever underground leftist information propaganda outfit. And so they thought, well, we'll build our own version of that institution. So what you see on the right is institutions are are kind of like this funhouse mirror of what the right thought the left's institutions were, right? They thought that the left's institutions were just uh, uh, instruments of the left's goals, right? Instruments and and would produce information useful to the left and, and analysis and science useful to the left. And so they thought, well, Fairness, right, <laughs> dictates that we create a set of institutions that are designed to produce information and stories and narratives useful to the right. Then that's balance, and that's what that's how they view what happens. So the notion that that these institutions that they that they divorced from are meaningfully different, right? That that they are restrained in a way that is as I you know as I put it, transpartisan in a way that restrains both sides. They just don't believe that the left's institutions are like that. They don't believe that mainstream science is like that. And I really don't think they believe in the possibility of uh, of that almost like it's like a, another color that they don't have the like the photoreceptor for or something like that. So so, yes, they built a set of institutions that they thought mirrored the left's institutions. But you're seeing what happens when your institutions have none of these sort of checks, none of these sort of self-corrective, self-critical mechanisms and and you're absolutely right. I mean the way you described it is the way I would have summarized it, which is not that the l- people on the left are smarter <laughs> than people on the right or or and, and in fact like you know study after study finds that it is the smartest and best educated people on the right that are most in the grips of a lot of these a lot of these crazy conspiracy theories including climate denialism. Like it is the it is the it is the right-wingers with the most advanced education that are most likely to be Climate deniers. It's not a matter of intelligence. It's a matter of trust. And, and do you trust institutions that have those self-corrective mechanisms built in? And what you see on the right in journalism, in their in their so it's just science that they try to do and their think tanks is just all self-corrective mechanisms are gone. All firewalls are gone. There's nothing anymore restraining just pure. You know, just like like to me, a great example was the Green New Deal came out and and I knew that like I knew like it wasn't even a plan. Right. It's like the sketch of something that could someday be a plan. And I knew that the right wing, some right wing think tank would come up with some ludicrous report about it. But like I couldn't believe it. Like it's Egan Douglas Egan, who used to be, you know, like a, a respectable guy comes out with this <laughs> report that's like the Green New Deal will cost something like $1.7 trillion. It sounded like a Dr. Evil, like, like parody, like $1.7 trillion, like more money than exists in the economy. And it's just like, that's just like, that is the evidence that wait, that's no
3: not, one. Wait, a bunch of the candidates are proposing to spend more than $1.7 trillion, at least over 10.
2: Well, no, this, well, the the context of the of the it was just about the green new deal resolution and it's just about what happens if you well the way they did the the way they did the study is not is not worth getting into but the point was that it would destroy the american economy but not just like slow the american economy not just like dent growth or mildly raise taxes right it would just destroy like it would it would bring the us to its knees and there's just like there was no one in any of the rooms as that study was going through, who who said, like, is this assumption fair to the other side as they see what they're doing? Like, is this is this a, a fair reading of what might happen if this were implemented into law? Like no one was everyone was just like bent on how can we make this look as ludicrously bad as possible? Like, Just the firewalls are gone. And so and so it just makes it like it makes it feel futile as you as you well know and have been struggling with, it makes it feel futile to try to reach out and and grapple w- with those people and, and discuss things with those people because all like ultimately you're right. Our our knowledge grounds out in trust. Yours and mine, everybody's grounds out in trust. Who do you trust? And like we've decided who we trust. And so in a sense, our explanations for why climate is valid or anything, Ground out ultimately in, look, these people who are trustworthy say so. Like that, in the end, like that's where you're, that's where you end up. And if you're dealing with people who have sort of wholesale rejected the institutions that you trust to produce truth, then you just have no, there's no <laughs> way to argue. There's no ground, common ground on which to stand to even argue. You just come, you end up with just sort of incommensurate you know, sort of like almost like incommensurate pre-verbal worldviews that are just, there's no connection, there's no bridge anymore, even to try to, even to try to find a some path forward. At least that's what it feels like. I, I want to foreground something that is like splitting in my head right now. So
3: when I do these conversations, I sort of try to listen to them in real time, like from a number of different perspectives, which sounds like a crazy thing to do and probably is. But I can hear this conversation from you know a listener who's more right wing and like the way it would make you feel is like fuck you guys <laughs> yeah, totally <laughs> right totally. and on the one hand i really get that right it's it it sounds condescending it sounds um angry uh it sounds like you were just saying you know does doug holtz he can take the the left at its best and is this actually taking the right at its best and then on the other hand I was watching, um, not only have I read a lot of right wing climate stuff and a lot of it is horrible and not only horrible, but it's done incredible and will do incredible damage to people. Um, But we're talking the day after the House impeachment uh, debate. So I just watched for hours, like in 90 second or two minute increments, like a Democrat come up and say, Donald Trump tried to push Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden, which he admitted to doing in a call record. And um, that's bad. And then I would watch a Republican come up and say, they just hate you. They hate you and they hate this president. And And I went home and I was talking to my wife last night and I was just saying that it feels so unbelievably insurmountable, right, to to watch that. Like this wasn't even an argument. Um, To watch what was happening yesterday and like walk out and the place I'm going with this is – there's a tension, or I've almost come to think of it as like a paradox in in reporting or talking about polarization in a polarized age, which is to describe it clearly is itself polarizing. to say what is true about Donald Trump is polarizing and allows you to say allows people to say in response, they're condescending. They don't like him. They, you know, like dismiss him. Trump derangement syndrome because, Like the truth of Donald Trump is really quite bad. And on this particular issue, the truth of it is horrifying. Um, What has happened in climate is not that the right has come up with reasonable counter arguments here, you know, or even reasonable counter proposals. You know, the left wants to do a command and control Green New Deal economy. But what the right wants is a carbon tax like Greg Mankiew said they should do. Like the right has just wanted nothing. And has tried to discredit the underlying information on which we could stop an incredible harm from happening to society. And after years and years and years of that, like, what do you what do you do with it? This is all circling us back a little bit to this point about media. One of the things that is interesting about the ways the right and left media split, it could have gone, uh, as you say, another way. Let me try to offer this in the more generous dimension. The right is often correct that the media, including the mainstream media, has what I would call not so much a liberal, but a cosmopolitan bias, like a left cultural bias. The media's bias is not the nation, it's Morning Joe, right? It's kind of pro-choice, it's pro-immigrant, it's not pro-single-payer healthcare, and it's certainly biased towards a national security establishment. So it's not a left bias in the way we think about it ideologically, but there's no doubt that it is like filled with liberal graduates of elite colleges who live in big cities, like three big cities in blue states. And the right is not wrong to feel unrepresented by that. And so there have been times when people on the right have said, like, we got to do something here. And so I always think of this speech Hucker Carlson gave at CPAC in, I don't know, it was like 10, 15 years ago now. And he said, we need a new york times we need the new york times to say what you will about it they do actual reporting they're serious about accuracy and Donald, and tucker carlson rode the hype of that speech to create the daily caller which is let's say is not but like a, a mirror case, the new york case times case closed
2: right like yes. case closed there it is <laughs> like that's the thing that's right like and whatever I, I, they
3: want whatever they want like that's what they create and like that's yes. a real the hardest chapter of my book to do was the asymmetric polarization chapter Because it turns out there isn't a very good explanation for why asymmetric polarization is happening. We know it's happening, but why it's happening is much harder. And I came up with some answers after writing the chapter six times and doing a ton of work. But it's very hard to say why the right did not just create a – you can imagine a set of media institutions that are based in red states, that are big, that are more like the news side of the Wall Street Journal, or even to some degree parts of daytime Fox News that are pretty good. Um, They're just conservative. But that's not what they created. They created and
2: listened to Breitbart, and well, I I, I think like have a pretty good explanation. I I, I I mean, I have a million good explanations, which probably gives probably an indication that maybe they're not that great. But like, but but the, the sort of the way I look at it is, what is animating the right today, right? And it's become super clear now. There's debate about it earlier. <laughs> maybe in my political career, I've been beating this drum forever, but but now I feel like it's pretty clear. The right is animated by. By the interests of a demographic—white, suburban, and rural, married people, more or less—like that's it, the the right wing coalition has become extremely homogenous, not only ideologically, but but eth- ethnically and and sort of culturally, and even along some I think personality uh, measurable personality lines. And I just think that that on a, on a sort of objective historical level, viewing America. As as a culture run by those people, right, where those people are at the center, other people are allowed to come in at their discretion, right? But they run things, and it's a U.S. white patriarchal Christian culture. That view is incommensurate with modernity. It's in is just incommensurate with a number of things that are happening in the world: demographic trends, uh, economic trends. I mean, climate change—like, name it. Like, there's there's all sorts of things that make that an unworkable. Unrealistic models. So, if you are going to cling to that, to those tribal interests, to the interests of your demographic, by necessity, you're going to have to throw overboard a lot of sort of the producers of objective <laughs> knowledge. You're going to have to like, you're going to have to uh, cast people out of your tribe insofar as they still hold uh, those those principles dear, because you can't square the circle. You can't say you can't like uh, i think uh uh um what's his name book on tribalism uh lowry you know his book on uh, on nationalism that just came out uh, rich lowry's book i think is sort of like a an a, a wan i think an unsuccessful effort to put some sort of ideological or 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 philosophical coherence behind this idea. But ultimately, if you think you and people like you should rule, that's not a philosophical, it's not a governance argument. It's just a raw power argument. And the only way to make it work is power. And so you can't make you can't keep yourself in charge, especially when you've become a demographic minority through through good science and good evidence and fairness and the principles that are written into our founding documents, you just you can't square that circle. So it they're they're either, they were either going to submit to a more multi-ethnic kind of cosmopolitan um um uh mixed society which is gonna eventually be some sort of mixed version of capitalism, just like all the other developed democracies, you know, just become a, a developed democracy uh, uh, or, or stay in charge. There's not, you, you can't do both. And so they chose, you know, as I think most groups in power do <laughs> chose their own interests and chose to try to stay in power and almost everything else, the rejection of, of, their, their previous moral principles, their previous political principles, their previous epistemological principles. All of that is, is a necessary outcome of holding on to power.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
3: So I think that if you pull this out, back to the climate piece of it, a lot of where knowledge comes from is who you trust, and a lot of who you trust is your perception of whether or not the institutions in question like you, whether or not they are on your side, and if not, you're not going to trust them. And so one thing that seems to me very hard in the climate debate is that particularly as the situation gets objectively worse and objectively more threatening, the impulse is to turn up the volume on it, right, that we should be clear about it, louder about it, more panicked about it, more serious about it, more uncompromising towards deniers, uh, which in many ways I I totally agree with. Um, I started this whole serious thing. I'm not I'm just not going to play around with whether or not climate science is real. Like we're not going to do that here. And on the other hand, this is one of those problems of polarization where it's like the more you amp it up the more than those people who already don't feel represented in your institutions and by your leaders and by your people, the the more hostile that space feels to them, the less likely they are to cross over. And so it becomes this almost insolvable problem. Like the more honest you are about what's going on, the less chance you have of getting anything done with it. Um, it is not like the compromise approach has worked recently um, at all. And on the <laughs> yes. other hand, Nota- notably, notably. And on the other hand, you know, I'm I, d- I just don't know where it leaves you. I don't know where the sort of direction we're going in climate change, given that that demographic you're talking about still holds a tremendous amount of power in America. Like a trem- like basically all the political power except for the House of Representatives currently. Um, I don't exactly
2: know where it leaves you. I would amend that ever so slightly. Um, it is true that when you raise the volume it exacerbates partisanship on, on on any issue but we don't need to raise the volume the 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 people who have those people trapped <laughs> right wing media right it is right wing media's mission in life to raise the volume on all issues precisely to exacerbate polarization that is exactly what right wing media is designed for and what it does on anything so so i i mean i really question how much the messages of people who care about climate change even have any effect on those people at all because they never get there right like it's all of, like who gets to those people who are they listening to and the only people like you know like this the giant harvard study on media consumption i thought really reinforced this like the right is much more clustered around right-wing media than the left is, you know, the left's media habits are much more broad ideologically and and uh in terms of professionalism. And so everything that gets to them gets through that filter. So, so it's not like, I mean, this is this is why all this talk about climate messaging often sort of leaves me cold. It's like, what does it matter what messages? you know n r d c comes up with in some conference room uh you know doing like survey tests like they don't have any access to the people they're trying to reach, so what does it matter what their message is like the messages right wingers are getting are messages crafted by sean Hannity at al so I think polarization on this was inevitable, so like where does it leave you I mean you could ask that on uh You know, economic inequality. You could ask that on 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 crappy healthcare. You could ask that on sort of like economic precarity. Like there's a number of trends and and things going on in this country that just don't seem like they can go on the way they're going for much longer without something splitting apart. And and so the question of how to get of how to break the rights fever (laughs) or break its power. Right. And I would like us to come back to that distinction. Like, it's it's super um, important on climate change probably for, for the existential stakes, but it's just as important for poverty or, or homelessness or, you know, like decent foreign policy or, or, or anything else. Like there's no, every, the volume is being raised across the board on every issue by uh, a, a media that has these, whatever, 30, 40% of the country trapped in a bubble. So there's nothing like, the question is not like, What can we say that can reach those people? The question is how anyone but the right-wing media can ever reach those people, how those people can be busted out of that jail. I want to put you on this for a minute because I don't – what you're saying about
3: the right-wing media is true, but the incentives for escalation in media are everywhere now, right? And it's true at Vox. It's true everywhere, right? When there were three nightly newscasts and um, a couple – you had access to a couple radio channels, like fine, and people were – having running newspapers off of local business, local advertising monopolies so that you couldn't offend anybody, there was actually an incentive to turning the volume down because you were trying not to offend anyone, right? You needed literally everyone to be willing to watch or read you or listen to you, and so you couldn't offend anyone. Now, and like there's a big part of my book that's about this, and I think it's a pretty central story, the media has turned incredibly competitive. We are in like a war, not only of all against all internally, but against everything it's not just that we're against each other but you know Rachel Maddow competes with the big bang theory um you know if you watch vox youtube you're we're competing with netflix right it's like or, literally or for, fortnite fortnite right and so you have to escalate um to grab people right i mean this is true in everything right the the algorithms prize emotionality and intensity and so there's this way in which the volume of everything is turning up at an exact moment when turning up the volume seems to make it harder for anything to happen. And what even feels more insolvable than that to me is that when you turn the volume up, it feels to people like that is the right thing to do. It feels to people like that is the thing that will work. And most of at least what I think is true about politics, it's probably the thing that will fail most, right? The more like it got worse when Al Gore turned the volume up. It didn't get better, right? I thought Al Gore was doing the Lord's work and actually still do because you can only do what you can do as a human. But in some weird way, there's no doubt in my mind that an inconvenient truth making climate into like such a left issue was part of what exacerbated and accelerated that polarization and the famous South Park episode that they've partially walked back now with Al Gore warning about man bear pig and the whole thing. There may not be an answer to this. I'm not saying that the answer is to somehow go quiet or that I think, right, we watched the Lindsey Graham, John Kerry, you know, Joe Lieberman project fail too. It's not that the other thing has an answer, but that the, the thing that feels like the answer is also the problem. In an era of very high polarization in a political system that requires consensus to work, and it's something that I don't I don't know that there is a way to grapple with it, but I don't feel like I see people grappling with it.
2: Yeah, it's it's a you know, you and I both thought through this a million times and it's it's uh it's difficult, but I guess what I would say is that if if the left and the mainstream media had through whatever process could possibly pull this off collectively decided not to turn the the volume up on these issues over time i think that could have slowed what was going on but given that the right wing media absolutely was turning the volume up on everything all it could have done was slowed it and in other words like i feel like we're working something out that's inevitable and unavoidable and in a sense like at this point i'm kind of like there's no avoiding it and we're way too far down the path now to walk it back like there's no level of like calm reasonable open friendliness that can bridge the gap that exists now today i feel like you're like a object lesson in this like you're like a an interlocutor out wandering the world looking for good faith interlocutors. and they're getting harder and harder to to find. So so, um you know, so I feel like the only way out is through. like some way or another, it's got to resolve itself. like it's going to the volume's going to get up and up. and like something's going to break. I'm entirely, you know, open to the possibility that it's democracy that could break. That it's the country that could break or our institutions that could break but but I but I you know I sort of feel like this in miniature about climate political strategy too cuz this in miniature this is a climate political strategy debate that's been going on and on and on and on and on for ages do you be calm and reasonable and offer bipartisan solutions and open the door to the other side so that the people who so that they don't feel that it's hostile that they have there's a place here that they can come on board or do you try to intensify support among the people already on your side and build their political power such that you overwhelm and defeat the other side <laughs> rather than persuading it to come to come on board like those seem to me roughly the two choices not only on climate but on almost everything and i'm like i've seen the former strategy which is let's face it, like liberals love the former strategy in their hearts. They want to be reasonable. They want to be seen as reasonable. They want to have discussions and arguments that matter. (laughs) They wanna think ideas matter. They just have tried that for so long. I've seen it tried in the climate space for so long, so like earnestly and with such good faith and with zero results that I've just sort of come around to. you know the the left broadly speaking has the numbers on almost all these issues including climate change they just don't have the intensity and they don't have the power because of the fucked up way our constitution is written uh uh and all the many ways that their power is is magnified so so i just had like it's a tragic to me personally as someone who loves words and arguments but like I've just almost kind of devolved to thinking that this is a power struggle. There's no way around it. The The demographic we were talking about earlier is not going to gracefully step aside. They They can't stay in power and they're not going to gracefully step aside. And so we just got to like. Bull through this somehow and hope the kind of ship holds together until somehow this is resolved. But I just there's no going back now. Like Al Gore was as like calm and moderate and reasonable as you could get Yeah, the he whole thing. The whole, the whole hit on Al Gore is too boring. <laughs> I know he's like he, too he was boring on purpose. And- Precisely so that people could come on board like no one has thought more or tried more to reach out to Republicans and people on the right than Al Gore. He would he would love nothing more in the world than to have a few good faith interlocutors on the other side. It would make Al. it would delight Al Gore, but he has not found any because there just aren't it doesn't seem like there are any left. So like. The only way out is through, I guess, is is the short way of saying all uh, so that. So
3: I want to move us to the, to sort of identity and conflict within the climate space. But before I do, I, I want to add one thing to what you just said and and maybe make a more hopeful argument of my own, which is, one, I agree that probably the only way out is through. But I, I I would take it almost a bit differently. And and by the way, if people have not listened to my interview with Varshini Prakash, who is the executive director of the Sunrise Movement, go back and listen to it. I think she's really great. She's, great. And she's really eloquent on this. But... I f- the only way that you get things done in a polarized political system is in the very 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 rare situation that you have the constellation and unification of power such that you can do things for like 2 years your thing is at the top of the priority list and it's ready to go and the thing that um the thing that is to me like the question of the democratic primary is not like, can they beat the Republicans? So that is obviously one question. But that's not the question for the climate group. The question for climate in the Democratic primaries, does it come first? Um, And for a long time, healthcare has more or less had a hammerlock on Democrats. Um, And I'm a healthcare guy, right? I'm part of that. Uh, But the question of like, if Bernie Sanders is elected president— Does he spend all – spend his political capital immediately on Medicare for all or does he spend it on the Green New Deal? Because it is actually not the case that you can do everything. Like people like to say, Mm -hmm. like, I'm walking, chew gum. The answer in politics is you probably can't walk or chew gum, right? You will probably like collapse (laughs) immediately, you know, because Mitch McConnell will either still be – You're lucky if you can get out of bed in politics. Right, like either Mitch McConnell is going to be Senate majority leader or – Joe Manchin is going to be the 51st vote or whatever, right? It's going to be very hard no matter what you do. Democrats aren't going to have 75 votes. But in the case, the Democrats have 53, right, which is a good scenario for them in 2021. Like if they could do that, it would be a huge win. Do they spend those 53 votes on climate or do they spend it on health care or do they spend it on taxes? Or where do they spend it? Because it will take longer than you think. The committees are going to get involved. And so the thing that i think is really important that is happening is groups like sunrise have forced democrats to come up with more ambitious climate proposals because these proposals are no longer meant to be compromised with the right right they're no longer they're no longer sort of pre-compromised in that way but also and this is the place where i'm not sure they're winning and i think it's important um it's why i've asked this question of a lot of people you have to get it to the top of the priority list. Like you're not going to like win the climate fight, but you might get six months when you can do something that might happen. And the question is, is the thing
2: climate or not? Because it's not yeah, going to be everything. I, I mean, this is uh, I have so much to say on all this. but <laughs> <laughs> A couple of things. One, one, I would just start by saying um, as someone who has. uh been uh brushing up against the climate movement for 15 years now um, the emergence of the sunrise movement and its cohort as uh, one is one of the few sources of hope in my embittered husk of a heart like these these kids are so much more savvy about political economy and about the mechanics of protest and just the whole, just meta, this kind of meta awareness of what they're doing, right? Not just sort of like stomping in earnestly and believing that being true and right is is enough, right? The, the They know what they're doing. They have a plan. Like it's a long shot as they're well aware, like they're against overwhelming odds, which they're also well aware, but they know what they're doing and they're open to self-correction. And it's just like, I have more hope and respect. For and respect for the climate movement of the last uh, two or three years than I have had in years, so I, I have very few positive things to say on this subject. So I thought I'd get that out there. Um, uh, secondly, you're totally right about the priority thing, and and I and you're right that that's what Sunrise is, is after. And there are some good signs, you know, polls showing that that in primary states, Dems, at least you know, those are sort of primary voter Dems are ranking climate higher and higher, but it's more about how the elites and the politicians see it. And I worry, I think I was listening to you actually talk with Paul Krugman the other day. And even though, I mean, your guys sort of discussion of the of the of the policies, uh, climate change policies was like small but more sophisticated than uh, anything that would have happened five or ten years ago, which I thought was great, but even but even the two of you were sort of, or, or even sort of Krugman was sort of saying like, you got to put climate first because it's like taking a bullet, you know, you got to get it out of the way, like it's viewing it as though it is sacrifice, viewing it as though you're gonna like raise prices for people and you're gonna like somehow fuck with people's lives and they're not gonna like it, and so like how do you, when do you take that bitter medicine, right? And if you're gonna take, if you view it as bitter medicine and you've gotta take it, like the logic is like, take it quick the minute you get in there and then maybe people will forget about it by the time the it, it comes to vote. And that I think is not necessarily accurate, but it is it does capture how I think elite Democrats see this issue, particularly Nancy Pelosi, who you know has a personal history with this, who who took great risks to get the Waxman-Markey bill through the climate bill through uh, the House back in 20, uh, 2008 or two thousand nine, whatever it was, and then got hung out to dry and lost a bunch of members and like and just got beat up politically to no end whatsoever because it all just died in the Senate. So she's ever since then has been um and and I've heard this from a number of people in and around uh, D.C. just burnt on the climate movement and and completely felt screwed by that process does not believe there's support for this going all the way up is entirely it, it's more or less is like assuming the same thing would happen again if she gets stuck with another climate bill right that it would go die in the senate at Joe Manson's hands and just doesn't doesn't prioritize this And a good um, a good example was just uh, an episode that just ended you know that we had this frenzy we had this must pass spending bill that just came out of congress and there was this frenzy of last minute negotiations and and All the climate environmental community was yelling and yelling for Pelosi to prioritize these clean energy tax credits, extend the tax credits for solar and wind and EVs. This is a, a, a small thing, but it's gettable. It's progress on climate change. You're up there saying climate change is an existential threat. You're up there saying you prioritize it. Prioritize it. But instead, she prioritized the entirely unwinnable battle of trying to get an EITC extension and all these things to sort of please the, the, the frontline members in her caucus, what she thought they wanted. And she didn't think they wanted clean energy. She didn't think clean energy was worth going to the mat for. She didn't think there was enough support for it in the caucus and in public to, to make it a priority. And if that's true in that situation, you know, Blow that up to the milieu of a new democratic president in twenty twenty with all these competing interest groups banging on the door, all with good cases to make about why their problems should be a priority. I don't have a good feeling about I don't have a good feeling about Congress, the Democratic Congress prioritizing this. so I think sunrise is right to beat on that drum. that is the drum to beat on. I do not think they are prioritizing it now, and so a lot's going to come down to the president, you know, like you and I both know and have and have Said a kajillion times that everyone overestimates uh, the significance of the president and and the powers of the president. But in this case, I think the president's priorities are going to be a big, a big deal, a big, you know, a big influence on on Congress, and so it matters more than usual. I would say. What they say about this, like their sort of public posture on this, so I think Sunrise is is wise to be doing what they're doing. Yeah,
3: I think there's a, a lot in there, and one thing I want to note on in, I am very frustrated by what happened with the renewable energy credits in that spending bill. Um, hopefully, it's not the last bite at that apple. But right now, like if you just look back, right before Waxman Markey, the previous big thing that was in Democrats' head was something called the BTU tax from the '90s, yes. where <laughs> that was an energy tax. It was small. It was like a good policy. And they got torn to shreds on it. And it was the exact same thing that happened where the House passed it at great cost. And then it died in the Senate and a bunch of House members. It was part of why they um, lost seats. And then similarly, go over to France. And part of what is put um, Macron in such danger is an increase in the gas tax. People really do not like paying more for energy. And I I think oftentimes that I've just become in a way that like it can't last for too long. Like I'll just have to do something else. But just this (laughs) old guy being like, no, you don't (laughs) understand how much worse even the median Democrat in Congress is than you think. Like if you are like like if you (laughs) are operating in the world of presidential political rhetoric in a Democratic primary campaign, you you have no sense of what that median Democrat is, how cautious they are where they will kill this, what the committees are like. And, you know, nobody likes like the guy being like, well, Congress is going to kill everything, um, even if it's true. And I'm not even sure it's like long term, you know, I'm not even sure it's long term helpful. But there is this issue of like, how do you like, how do you target that member? What do you do with them? And I think there you're right. Like you will need a president who is willing to put their presidency at risk for climate change in the very way. And I will say this and for him that. President Barack Obama was willing to put his presidency at risk for health care. And the thing was a lot of Democrats, a lot of people get into democratic politics because they care about health care. Like that is a that is a, a a route into being a liberal. And I think for a lot of young people, climate now is. But it wasn't when most of these politicians came in, like they're like they've adopted climate and like and, and they speak it with an accent
2: yeah they a couple of things have changed one there is a generation coming in now for whom who who are who are uh climate natives i don't i don't know a better way to say it like (laughs) who have grown up with the issue and have spoken that language from the beginning and who uh, among other things the climate is a fascinating study of it's a study of the sort of distinction between believing something and like really believing it (laughs) i don't know i don't know how else to put it like a lot of like a lot a lot of Adults read the information about climate change and believed it. I believed it, but it's like, does it fit into my worldview? Does it shape my worldview the way it ought to if it were actually true? Do you know what I mean? like yeah. am I following all the implications? Am I truly absorbing it or am I just saying yes, I assent to these to these assertions, right? like and I think the kids these days have absorbed it like they absorb what it means and it means it's scariest. As- Shit, when you, you know, when you when you really grapple with it, so that's changed. And, and two is like, and this is a, a key frustration that 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 we should talk about if we're going to get into politics. Is right, like climate politics has been shaped by uh, economists in in just the ways you were talking about with Krugman, for, with all the negative effects you were talking about, you know, and the, it, it, mainly this sort of focus on pain, this focus on price as like this or sort of the 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 pivot around which everything has to happen, make the bad thing more expensive and people will spontaneously do the good things, right? This is sort of economist, classic economist thinking. And and of course, that's like politically. (laughs) I mean, how did everyone not see (laughs) from the beginning how utterly politically toxic it would be to lead with that? Like, why would you lead with that? It's insane to me to this day. And still people, Still, people are out leading with it. So, like, n- people have been saying, like, oh, we need a better, like, we need climate policy that's like forward-looking and exciting and tech-focused and and you know that'll change people's ordinary lives and that will help um, demographics who might be hurt by other climate policies and that will like create jobs and that will help reorient the U.S. economy. All these sort of positive, forward-looking messages. We need to get that into policy, and that policy will be more popular. And so then the kids said okay <laughs> right we'll do that here's a whole set of policies that like are is like a rural redevelopment program and a and a and a, like a massive uh, a gift to farmers and, and rural agrarians and like and and it will like help with the working class in cities and it will make people's ordinary lives better and it'll help the economy. And we'll call it the Green New Deal, which is like this forward looking, you know, this optimistic, forward looking title. And like here it is, like inspirational climate policy that everyone can get involved and engaged in and invested in that will make lives better for the vast majority of people in the country and that will guarantee workers not just promise and wave hands at worker retraining but will guarantee that workers will be protected through this massively disruptive transition so they can embrace it so they can be part of it and be enthusiastic about it because they're not at risk by it. So like the kids went off and made a policy like that and then introduced it to American politics and Fox said, oh, uh, liberal and moderate Democrats said, oh, Fox said it's liberal. It must be liberal. Uh, pfft, we need something more moderate. I'm like, what the fuck? Like <laughs> this, like the Green New Deal is the answer to the policy questions everyone's been asking. And just because the like the grooves of American political rhetoric are so deep, Everybody's so in their lane that it just got flopped into a lane the minute it debuted. And I just like it's so frustrating to me that if Democrats like if if rural Democrats from purple districts, had instead of just accepting what Fox said about the Green New Deal, had instead gone to their constituents and said, hey, like farmers and out-of-work fossil fuel workers, here's a plan to, like, infuse this area with with federal money and to create new jobs for you and to get you better health care. Like, this is directly materially good for you. Even if you don't give a crap about polar bears, or even if you don't give a crap about climate change, like this is an economic redevelopment program. It was there waiting for the Democratic Party to unite around it. And if the Democratic Party was capable of uniting about anything, if it had any collective strategic sense, it would have united around it and not just let Fox define it. But there's no left Fox. So moderate Democrats are just in their offices in D.C. watching Fox to find out how to treat these things. And so it just ended up being unrealistic, lefty socialism. And we're just back to everybody saying the same shit they say about everything else. I think
3: that, though, lets us get a, a layer too deeper into the
2: sort of identities and and
3: ideas at war inside the climate movement. Because, I don't know, I don't actually truly buy your... Uh, Recitation of that. Um, I'm a I'm a fan of the Green New Deal. I think I think of it more as like an ideology. It's sort of saying this is what it means to be a progressive in this era. But the Green New Deal encoded a huge number of like ideas that were extremely one, controversial to those moderate Democrats, right? Medicare for All is a very controversial idea in the Democratic Party. A job guarantee is a controversial idea in the Democratic sure, Party sure, for sure. moderate Democrats. So when you put it all in one thing, what you're saying is that. This is the agenda for, like, the most liberal, ambitious side of the party that includes all things you guys don't like. I think that was the right thing to do. Like, I'm not questioning that, but it's not – that was not a Fox thing. Like, Fox did, like, as you always knew they would, demonize the Green New Deal. But why you didn't get – um. That was not built for support for moderate Democrats. Like, I could, I, like I could look at it in two seconds but, but and tell Fox you that. Fox didn't
2: demonize it. Fox didn't demonize what was in it. <laughs> like, I mean, it's a, it's a, threadbare, uh, it's a threadbare resolution. But they, they made shit up. Like, they could have made shit up about anything.
1: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team.
3: There's a real internal war in climate politics, much more so than I understood, between, I don't know, I guess the terminology is right, the eco-modernists and, you know, I guess the environmentalists or something. Like the Green New Deal, for instance, what was striking to me, even though, as you've made the point many times, it wasn't explicitly taken off the table, the fact that it did not mention nuclear – The degree to which nuclear has become a symbolic issue in the environmental space, where like you're for nuclear, that means you're for technology and for a future of more and energy abundance and and so on versus like you're against nuclear and you're for a a future of limits and learning to live in harmony with the planet and discipline and like a a human race that understands that it can't have everything and just grow forever, that that's like a really – It's a really deep cleavage in a way that I didn't understand how deep it was. And the way that those have become identities that I think are going to be – even if Democrats were ready to like put together a big program and so on, the degree to which those things are going to create internal splits in the caucus um, and in the sort of party seem to me to be underplayed. Like the ferocity of those debates is – I think they just haven't come out that clearly to people who aren't paying that close attention because everything is overwhelmed by that bigger left-right Fox News is it real is it not debate, but inside there's a lot more anger um, and much more different understandings of the situation than I had than I had understood before I really began talking to the people on both sides of that.
2: Yeah, well, you know the old uh, the old parable about the the blind men and the elephant. Uh, y- you know uh, everyone. Everyone feels something slightly different. I mean, if you and climate change is so big and all encompassing, like if you just approach it, like if you came down from Mars, right, with no priors and just approached it cold as as it is, as the science says it is, your solutions and your responses would not necessarily line up neatly with political identities as they have formed In the US. Let's 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 put it that way. Like it it crosses a lot of those. the, The policy response or a sensible policy response would cross a lot of those lines, cross a lot of those barriers and would please and displease identities in various ways. But of course, like no one is a Martian. No one's approaching it like that. It's so big. Everyone's coming to it from a place already, right? A from an identity already. So, like if you're an environmentalist, you've got all this set of assumptions about how the world works and how politics works and who's a good guy and who's a bad guy and and to some extent you're going to squeeze climate change into those categories and it's the same thing like whatever your priors are wherever you're coming from to a certain extent you just can't can't take in climate change as it is, it's almost, it's like the noumena, you know, it's like, you can't experience it directly. You have to sort of like squeeze it into some kind of categories to make any sense of it. And everybody has their own categories they squeeze it into. So you end up with a lot of these very, very stupid arguments. But I, but I also think that to some extent, you're right that there are, are deep divisions, but I tend to think that a lot of those, like if we were in a rational world with a rational policy making uh, uh, apparatus, that people of goodwill on climate change could come to consensus, reasonable consensus, pretty quick. I think the heat of those debates has just been exacerbated and turned up continually by. The fact that nothing is happening, <laughs> there's nothing to fucking talk about, no one's doing anything, there's no point in trying to persuade the right, right? So if you care about climate change and you have strong opinions on it, who will listen to you? Like who cares about your arguments? It's the person a notch over, right? I mean, this this is so true on the left on so many things. Like, like like people who share 80-90% of their sort of policy prescriptions will. F- fixate on that 10% and argue with one another because, like I said, liberals love arguing. They love persuasion. They love the idea of like working things out. And the only people who will argue with them are other, other people who are already sort of already on board with the climate change. So you get these debates that I think just go on and on because there's nothing else to do. There's nothing else to talk about. So and I So I think they've been sort of exaggerated historically by that dynamic also. And I think some of them are even... Some of them are fading, like a lot of these sort of like the nuclear thing. I I get why it seems much more intense than you thought. I guess I've been living with that intensity for longer. And I actually have started thinking that outside the kind of activist fringes, like there's, you know, like there's like the the eco modernist elite thinkers and sort of like the traditional elite thinkers. And then there's kind of like that stuff filters down to the activists who Kind of like take on a sloganeering version of it and go out and beat the drum for it. I think the drum beaters are still far apart, but the but the elites I think are are getting closer and closer together, partially because the problem's so obviously bad that literally anything we do is better than nothing and 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 also because um you know, it just turns out that a lot of these technical disputes are resolvable, like they, are, like the, the dispute over nuclear is like there's no reason you have to be ideologically pro or anti nuclear doesn't make any sense. Like that only makes sense in light of weird previous ideological commitments and identities having to do with uh, other issues and other decades. Right. It's the baggage of that stuff. If you just approach it uh, cold, it's it's not that hard to find consensus. Of course, we need to spend more money on nuclear. Of course, we need to spend more money on everything. It's always both and, right? Like all these arguments ground out in both and. Uh, it's just there's no policy making process to structure that consensus and put it on paper. so the arguments just get rehearsed over and over again. But I think if we had, people of goodwill sitting down to make policy it would not actually be that difficult to make really good policy. I mean that makes a, it difficult to make a good general thing, right? Yeah. Policy is positive sum and identities are zero yes. sum. Like yes.
3: Like there's yes. almost every every policy you can sit down and figure out a way to make it a bit better for most people and then it gets into well who's going to win? Like who's going to win the election, who's going to win the competition and then people start getting very zero sum about it. I mean there's this Charles, I think it's Charles Mann, right? Who is the prophet wizard dichotomy? You know, some people are prophets and some people are wizards, and like the prophets are sort of the, you know, the moralistic. Like it's all come down around us. We're courting disaster. We need to learn to live with less. And then the wizards are the technologists. We're just going to invent our way out. And. I definitely in that probably fall on the wizard side of things because I don't think that there is a politics of this that isn't going – like either the technology makes the solutions cheap enough to implement or like there's no version where the politics are going to work out. But by the same token, there's no version where the technology is going to be cheap enough to implement or deployable that the profits haven't created that political will. So there's this way in which oftentimes things that seem from the outside to be opposed are actually clearly symbiotic. Like you need the people who are creating the political will, who are creating the panic, who are creating the urgency and the prioritization because you can invent everything you want. If there isn't interest or will or urgency around deploying it or putting in the research funding even to invent it, you're not going to get there.
2: Yeah, I would I would I mean, th- I think the way to summarize that is like all these internal dibu- d- disputes in the climate world, stepping back and viewing them from the perspective of the question of do something or don't do anything seem very small, right? They seem they seem uh, um, tiny compared to the much larger question of like, should we like wake the hell up and do something about this? Uh, y- you know, it seems picky. a I would the the only the only sort of thing I would caution or, or or question in in the way you just put that is I feel like it reflects a little bit of an unspoken assumption that has crept into climate politics where where technology is one thing it's like sort of positive and giving us better lives and solving these problems in like a positive way and policy is negative and punitive and tries to solve. The problem by taking stuff away from people and denying people stuff. And so given that dichotomy, anyone who's lived with politics for a while is like, yeah, like punitive, not going to be popular. <laughs> it's probably not going to work. Like people aren't going to get excited about that. Clearly we should go the positive d- direction. But I feel like that's a bad, like, that's just, um, that's a bad way of looking at politics. Like no technology Develops de novo. No technology just arises out of like the genius of tech bros in San Francisco. It's all shaped from the various early stages by policy. Technology is policy. Like we can shape technology results through policy. And if we want technology to get cheaper, as we absolutely should, um, we do that through policy. So again, it's like, this is not an either or, it's a both. And you might want to price carbon just as like a background accelerant to all this, but it's not going to be your main tool. Your main tool is going to be targeted, um, sectoral policies to make low carbon technologies cheaper and, 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 and to spread them and to create the sort of like financing mechanisms and regulatory structures that enable them to spread quickly. You know, it's, it's, it's not Policy and technology are not different. And so like the the, the kind of the profits, the sort of, I get the like philosophical distinction, but in practice, as always, like there's elements of both that will inevitably be involved. I, I, I kind of think like this is one of many areas where we where a distinction is sort of illuminating in some sense, but it also reflects something about climate change that comes up over and over again, which like people don't like, people really don't like ambiguity <laughs> they really don't like complexity that refuses to resolve or take any sort of discernible shape they don't like a morass of anxious just you know like a, an anxious morass so so they tend to clarify things by saying oh like we're going to fall apart and humanity is doomed because at least that's like aesthetically and dramatically a clear you know resolution to all this and and it's the same with or or no we're going to like transcend and go to space and this all all of this will look like a silly something silly we worried about once we invent the right tech just all these sort of stories and and all these sort of extreme versions of policy are all kind of like groping for clarity and 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 something clear and clean to hold on to when in fact likely the result Likely the outcome in climate policy and likely the outcome in climate change is like a really unsatisfying muddle of crap that like could be way better, but also could be way worse. Oh, (laughs) I I think that the worst, I think the most common mistake in policy debates
3: is people who do policy always and everywhere underestimate muddling. They underestimate how much people will muddle through. they underestimate how much people how much pain people will bear in some ways I think that the the emphasis in the climate debate on ideas of extinction um uninhabitability uh like a world that like people can't live in is done to like one i i actually don't think the science really backs it up at least not on the sort of you know timetables that' we're, we can we can see forward into um soon. Um, but two, I think that it operates like it does in a lot of things. The healthcare debate has always been like this too where it's like – everybody's like, well, we can just like costs keep going up because if you do, then the line will go all the way to the top of the graph and there will be no money for anything else. So obviously we're going to – and then it just turns out they keep going up. and People are like, eh, OK. Um, and it's bad. Like really people hurt and die and lose their homes and I mean it's bad. Um, But people muddle through a lot of bad and always have and I think that one of the things in the climate debate is that – there's a desire for it to have to resolve, right? If it is true, then in the next 30 years we're going to hit some point of no return and then Earth becomes uninhabitable, then it actually has to resolve. Like, either we're going to win or lose when the reality, I think, is that we're going to muddle. Um, and hopefully we muddle better than worse, but but we're going to muddle. There's
2: a reason it ends up there. I mean, there's a reason it ends up there, which is just... Um, just sort of just in, intense uh complexity of all this and the sort of te- and, and and also um you know one of the scariest things about david wallace wells who i think you you've also had on in his book uninhabitable you, you earth you had, on. ah, right,
3: had on right you it's had hilarious. on this podcast yes. on his book
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes i thought i remembered vaguely uh yes i talked to david wallace wells but his book is great everybody should read it one of the one of the scariest things he he raises is is um, the extraordinary ability of human beings to adjust to circumstance right to adjust to what's around them like we humans have shown the ability to adjust to and even to be happy in incredibly inclement circumstances you know like you just in- incredibly harsh horrific circumstances and if you're just born into that, that's your normal. And we're so good at acclimating to things and just taking things on board that this narrative that's been around in the cli- in climate circles for a long time, this notion that like once it gets bad enough, people will see, like you said, that we have to do that. We have to do something right that that will finally bring that clarity, like this clarity of purpose that people desperately want. Once it gets bad enough, there's like, I don't know, two storms simultaneously, whatever, pick your disaster. Um, people will wake up. But that but that all presumes um, that all presumes that people sense a change and a difference. But like what's going to happen is storms are just going to incrementally, very, very slowly get worse. Like everything's getting sort of incrementally slowly worse. And every new cohort that's born into that thinks of that as normal, like there's not the time scales are so screwed up here there's not sort of a single cohort in power that feels a change at the at the level of kind of human experience so we just like are going to get used to in each new increment of chaos each new increment of suffering the idea that like there will be regular heat waves that wipe out thousands of people at a time will just like will will just be normal <laughs> like look how look how fast insanity became normal day-to-day operating procedure in the U.S. post-Trump. Like, look what we've gotten used to and how fast we've gotten used to it and how hard it is already to sort of arouse ourselves at things that just a few years ago would have been cataclysmic in American politics, would have shaken us all to our core. You know, I was thinking about this yesterday when the, when they impeached the president. I was like, oh, the third impeachment in U.S. history. This ought to feel... Big. This ought to feel like a big deal, but like my big deal o meter is completely broken by, by the last three years, and I just don't have the. I. It, it's just like I've been crouched taking this beating from, you know, from the world, and I just don't have the sensitivity anymore to even register it as a big deal. And that's true as climate gets worse and worse. It's just like we're just going to take it on board, and so there's not going to be this spontaneous upwelling of resistance. There's not going to be this sort of like moment, Pearl Harbor moment, where people finally and completely and decisively (laughs) aim at this problem. It's always going to be difficult to drive it into political priorities because it's always going to be in the background. And which is why, and this is a long, winding way of saying this, is why I sort of like, I don't really personally, aesthetically, uh, you know in terms of facts i don't really like the extinction narrative either i don't really like we only have 10 le- 10 years left either like in my perfect world everybody's you know cautiously saying <laughs> you know using all the right caveats and 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 you know being precise about whatever but it's just Climate change is never going to be that. There's never going to be a deadline. There's never going to be a reason, a clear reason why it has to jump to the head of the of the priority list. That's true. No matter how bad it gets, there's always going to be proximate. I mean, even the problems that climate change partially causes are going to occlude climate change politically. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. We have to deal with, with the my, refugee crisis, my, migration. And... Yeah. Mm-hmm. On and on like, like rescuing cities. Like even that it's going to make it more difficult to address the larger background problem. That's always going to be true. So, so this is sort of like my question to, to people who scold, you know, sort of scold the extinction rebellion or scold, uh, activists for saying we only have 10 years left or scold any sort of like, uh, any attempt to give this some clarity, <laughs> right, and some edges, they get scolded. But the but the but like the alternative is no one ever gets excited about it. And no one ever gets worked up about it, and it stays in the background. And we just deal with the proximate problems it causes forever and forever and ever, and it never gets better. So like, if the choice is being scientifically imprecise versus letting the world burn, you know what I mean? Like maybe like. Our aesthetic and kind of like temperamental preferences for how people ought to talk. Maybe we ought to reconsider <laughs> those. You know what I mean? Like, I maybe like I maybe I should rethink about how I like people to talk, and maybe I should work backwards from what's gonna cause people to solve this problem and prevent you know, apocalypse. Like yeah, that I, I agree with seems like I, it ought to be more important, right? Oh, yeah. I I agree with a lot. Of,
3: I mean, look, like It is important to me as a journalist that I am accurate in the way I talk about things, Um, but I don't think it's my job in life to run around scolding people for being somewhat um, alarmist about the possible consequences of something that is incredibly alarming. Um, I have to present good information, but activists are always more overheated. Uh, That said, something that I think really gets occluded in this debate and really does scare me, when you were saying we, right, like we're just going to let it. The problem of climate change and in some ways I think the power of the you know, extinction level rhetoric, it's going to become a problem of inequality. Like I, you can see this one coming. Um, I think one thing that people in the extinction rhetoric are trying to do is say you are not going to be exempted from this because you are rich and live in a rich country. And like that's in Dave Wallace's Wells book. He talks about the fires in Paradise, California, which is certainly had wealthy areas within it. Um, you know, Miami, I've read good pieces about beachfront real estate in Miami. And yet the truth of the matter is, if you're pretty rich, you're going to be more or less OK. Like like for the foreseeable future, you'll be able to move away from Miami. You like you will be able to move away from places that are undergoing collapse. You will be able to have air conditioning during the heat wave. You know, as far as we can see sort of into the near future, Um, The rich are going to be able to escape a lot of the consequences of climate change and the people who are going to pay are the people who did not cause this problem, number one, Um, and the people who are – The poor people in rich countries, right? Like, you know, it wasn't the rich who suffered during Katrina in New Orleans. Um, It was the poor in New Orleans. And then very much the poor in poor countries, Um, you know, island nations that don't have the money for adaptation or people living in low-lying areas of Bangladesh. And one of the things that scares me most about like the climate change future is that it is this unbelievable accelerant. I don't want to say global inequality because I don't mean something even as bloodless as inequality. Like it is another way in which you are able to live a happy, healthy, prosperous, flourishing life if you are wealthy and another way that you are exposed to early death, starvation, disease, pain, suffering, um, and also just like non-flourishing if you are not. And. I'm like – I'm all for trying to make sure that people in richer countries feel this is a problem for them too. Um, And I don't like – I don't believe there's some secret bunch of words that will unlock it. But my like – my biggest fear in climate change is that what we have done is – or what we are about to do is we are going to throw the world's poor like back 100 years in human existence to where they're much more exposed to constant natural disaster and where they're in much worse kind of natural circumstances, while like the wealthy, and I mean this sort of on the global level, um, but, you know, but also within countries, the wealthy keep getting to accelerate into the future.
2: Just a few caveats. Uh, That's all absolutely right. And if like, if you ask me, like, if my prediction, like if I was, you know, a betting man, like Given how little we've done about inequality so far and given how much it's already exacerbated, like it doesn't seem like that's going to it seems likely to continue, especially with all these things driving it. And I would just add like uh, for well, I would just say like by way of background, we don't really know how okay you will be if you're rich. Like because we don't really know how bad it's gonna be. Like, you know, as you've discussed with your previous guests on this series, like the 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 overwhelming fact of climate change is uncertainty in in every in every dimension, in every respect. So we really don't yet really know. Like it's entirely possible and I would even say probable that we're gonna end up in a world where yeah, the rich will be okay, but the very, we're talking about the very rich, right? And like, and and for how long, like they all depend on a global economy too. So just how far up the income scale will these damages reach? We don't really know. And if you're, even if you're, I mean, I think we can agree, even if you're a rich person, even if you're a sociopath, like just your self-interest if you were rationally approaching your self-interest, you might think, yeah, the collapse of the global economy would probably be bad for me, too, in some way but do or you, another. The, the, but, I'll actually ask a question of you. Do you think we're looking at, you know, if
3: we're in a world of three degrees of warming, the collapse of the global economy? Like when I've talked to the climate scientists, I, I, I really do not want to be in the position here of downplaying it, because as you say, the uncertainty band here is incredibly high. But one of my concerns is that you get to something like 2.5 or 3 degrees of warming, um, And it's really bad, but it's not like the global economy uh, endures a
2: lot and has endured a lot in the past, like Spanish flu and multiple world wars. Sure. We can the best like basically the best case scenario is is the temperature gets incrementally higher and the problems that the temperature is causing get incrementally worse. But there's no. uh break. Right. There's no sort of like threshold crossed. You just get a little bit worse of everything that's already going on, which we absolutely could handle. We will muddle through that. Of course, like it's the uncertainties lurking everywhere are are these not not just like physical thresholds you could cross where you get this sort of lurch of action into a new steady state. Right. The sort of tipping points everybody's already always talking about. But there are social and political and economic tipping points that we that are equally opaque to us <laughs> that might well be crossed and trigger cataclysmic, you know, sort of cascading consequences. We really don't know. Like We just have no idea. And it's crazy to be sailing uh, full speed into a future when when the collapse of the economy is not something I would say, yes, that's what's going to happen but the collapse of the world economy is absolutely on the table as a possibility like as a distinct possibility and that seems like more than enough to rouse us from our from our slumber but 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 just the other thing i would say about 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 this rich people stuff is is as you know having studied identity so much this is something that haunts me um people will in in experiments and even just in day-to-day life will accept um less, worse circumstances for themselves as long as they don't lose relative position with other people, right? Like relative position matters more than absolute uh, 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 wealth or circumstance. So insofar as you're part of a global elite and you see yourself as at the center or at the top of things and think that that's the way the world should work, what if your choice is between a more uh, a, a safer and less warmed, but more egalitarian world, or a more warmed and more chaotic and more crappy uh, um, world of inequality, where you're still on top. And I really don't like, you know, call me cynical, but I really don't think that rich people are going to make the right call. And that, well, well let me that make that it, let just, me make it worse.
3: Um, because, oh, great, yeah, I'm I, I worried that we've gotten really dark here towards the end of this conversation. But <laughs> so be it. Um, this is this is a little bit why I focus on that climate inequality dimension, uh, and I recognize that I'm worried that one way this is going to come off is like, Ezra's not that worried about climate change, which is actually the opposite of the way I feel about this, that I'm worried that we're not going to do what we need to for the people who are going to be most resolved. Because in the climate models, one of the things that climate models cannot do and cannot tell us is how will we react to one another and treat one another and deal with one another in an era of increasing climate stress? um and i think that if you look around um if you look both at sort of individual experiments of not like the immediate aftermath of a natural disaster but how do people act under conditions of scarcity how do people act under conditions of say drought how do they act under conditions of heat waves or anxiety or how do they act when energy prices begin shooting through the roof and the answer is that societies like begin to fall right you have civil wars you have wars between states and just in general people begin hoarding and so like there's a world where as things get worse we like really band together and see like okay well we're we're all interdependent on one another and need to and then there's a world where as things get worse we become worse we become meaner and crueler and more protective and i need to get mine to protect my family and my kin and my city and my people and one of the worst things that is possible about climate change is that it activates that part of us. And so the worst the thing that climate change does, one of the true ways it truly harms humanity, um like in a huge grievous
2: planetary sense, is that it makes us turn on each other, yeah. It makes us all meaner. I mean, as I've said, I, one of my one of my uh, sort of apocalyptic scenarios that is on my mind a lot these days is the u s. right. Is gonna flip, I think, from climate denial to something like climate fascism, where well, you're already seeing you're already seeing this sprout in in European in some European sort of fringe parties, which is that, you know, the fact that climate change came to America, came to politics through science and liberalism. One of the background assumptions has always been, oh, if the world sees there's this collective problem, the world will react by by drawing together and collectively solving the problem, right? Like just of course, that's what they would do, but but like, it's not what people do most of the time, and and it, it's going to be so easy for someone like Trump to say, yeah, climate change is happening. Absolutely, it's happening. It's a terrible threat. That's why we need to build walls. That's why we need to cut off immigration. That's why we need to drill all our oil and gas while we've still got it, so we can so as things fall apart we'll end up on top. That is the tribalist approach to a collective action problem is to view it as zero sum and to work to become, you know, to, to rule the, to, to rule the trash heap that's, that's left behind. That's what, that seems to me a much more, and, and the more, as you say, the more people are under stress, the more they're under anxiety, the more they, um, are uncertain about their personal circumstances and their and their personal so, uh, social circles. The more tribal they become, the more kind of like inward the circles of concern are drawn. And that's not the kind; those kind of people are not the kind of people to sort of sit in an international process and discuss how they can all sacrifice for their mutual long term uh, uh, gain. I, I think you're right. The 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 effect of climate change that scares me the most is how it's going to affect the way we think and our behavior, and and I and all signs point uh, negatively. I think so far, and uh, I think this is a place we're going to have to draw us to a close. But um, but if you want to know
3: why I push in these conversations and, and believe deeply that we need to have a vision of abundance, it's in part because I think it's in it's at least in the conceptual framework of abundance that people can make decisions that are. Gentler towards each other, but the more you focus a human psychology on "there's not enough," like the worse it gets and quickly. um So hopefully we'll band together. um But let me ask you the question while I was used to end the podcast, which is: What are three uh, things? Because I know you you may not want to do the books we talked about this. <laughs> three things that you would recommend people consume that have influenced yeah, you that uh, others should try. I'll, I'll do.
2: I'll, um I'll, uh, I'll i'll do one set of books <laughs> i don't the reason i didn't want to do books is that i just like reading has more or less reading books has more or less fallen out of my life sadly uh, and when i do read books it is usually as a like a blessed relief from uh matters of substance so I read a lot of like pulpy trash that I would be embarrassed to recommend to your readers but I will recommend one bit of pulp uh my favorite sort of like escapist novels that I've read in probably like the last 10 years uh that it's um an author Charlie Houston I think he also uh I think he got his start in comic books if I'm not mistaken but he, he wrote this trilogy of novels called the Hank Thompson trilogy the first one's called Ben uh is called Caught stealing and it's just like, It's got everything I love. Uh, It's it's like really dark, violent noir, but it's all about this sort of like hapless, good-hearted protagonist who stumbles into these things and gets drawn into them and just like drawn and drawn and drawn for three books in a row and then just like wraps it up in this conclusion that just like, is, was so great, like heavy sobbing. Of course, I was on an airplane. I guess everything makes you sob on an airplane. But I literally, like, when I I remember finishing the third book and I had to go to the air, the, air, the the airplane bathroom and just sit on the toilet and and cry for a while, uh, which is not something that usually happens when you read pulp noir. So it just to me it was just like incredibly satisfying. So you're into that kind of thing. The Hank Thompson trilogy is great. Uh, the second book is not a book. It is an essay. That has always stuck with me ever since I read it back in 2012. Uh, it is called uh, "State of the Species," and it is just as magisterial as it sounds. It's by Charles Mann, the uh, the science journalist you you talked to earlier. Uh, um, just a great guy, a great writer. I had the privilege of meeting him last year and chatting for a while. It's just really elegantly written and so thoughtful. And it's really like the most, the best sort of capsule summary of like where we are as a species. (laughs) And it's all about like, I don't want to get too far into it, but it's all about, you know, he makes the point that everything we know about biology, every form of life that we're aware of, if put into an environment without predators and without environmental limitations, will breed and breed and breed and overbreed and collapse. Like we've seen that happen to species after species. You know, there are tons of natural stories and we can do experiments. It's just like a Petri dish. You put a protozoan into a petri dish with some with some proteins and and no and no limitations the protozoa will breed and breed and breed and breed and collapse and so his point is just here we are the human species we got no predators anymore and we basically have no almost no natural limitations anymore so the the if we are a biological species if we are programmed life like all other life is programmed then we would expect that that's what we would do. Breed and breed and breed and overbreed and then collapse. And we seem to be right in the midst of that cycle. Like that seems to be what's happening. And so the the question, the fascinating question that looms over all climate change discussions is, are we smarter than a protozoan? Are we capable of becoming self-aware about what's happening to us and intervening and preventing ourselves from acting out our kind of biological programming. And, and if we can do that, then we're something really like genuinely new in the world of life, right? We were something, something, there's something special about us. But if there's nothing special about us, if we are in fact just another species, then we're gonna act like literally any species would act in our circumstances, i.e., we're gonna breed and breed and overbreed and collapse. So it's just a really like thought-provoking context setting for the big story of humanity. And it's always uh, stuck with me and it's it's a long essay, but it's, it's so rewarding. Dave Roberts, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to
3: Dave Roberts for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here and to go through this uh, episode series with me. Um, I would love to get your feedback. I'd love to get your guest requests at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Um, thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Roja Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.